Colby Martin has been a pastor for 20 years. The first decade within evangelical Christianity and the last decade as a post-evangelical progressive Christian. He's the author of two books, Unclobber, Rethinking Our Misuse of the Bible on Homosexuality, and The Shift, A Survival Guide for Becoming a Progressive Christian, for which he's currently on a nationwide tour, sharing with communities about a vision for a kind of Christian practice, but with a progressive flavor. Real quick, there's a table right back there where he has his books. Uh, I think Unclobber is sold out and is actually out at the publisher, so they're working on more. But if you want to buy a copy of The Shift, or if you want Unclobber, you can Venmo him and give him your address, and he'll send you a copy signed whenever um, whenever they come in. He planted a progressive Christian church in San Diego in 2014 called Sojourn Grace Collective. He enjoys golfing, running, and yoga. And perhaps the most important thing you need to know about Colby is he taught me everything I know about styling hair. Um, Grace Point, will you give your best good morning to Colby Martin? Uh, I love you, buddy. Uh, what up, GP? So I come from San Diego, and uh, one of my favorite things to do there is take my kids to SeaWorld. And two of our four children really love what is called the Splash Zone. <laughs> Have you been to SeaWorld? Do you know what this is? This is the area in which you might get liquidated by the sea creatures, the whales and the dolphins. And I notice there's a lot of room open in the splash zone. So if anybody wants to come and experience some saliva flowing today, I welcome you to, uh, to move. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, speaking of splash zone, uh, Josh, thank you so much for, I don't know where you went. Doesn't matter, irrelevant. Uh, thank you for having me here. I met Josh a long time ago, and one of my favorite <laughs> Josh and Colby stories is we were at a conference in Chicago. By the way, band, I, don't mind me, I just might be moving things around so that I can pace. A um, number of years ago in Chicago, we were at this conference, and we were staying at an Airbnb house together with a number of people, and the, the next day, we didn't know the area very well, and the next day, we wanted to go get coffee before the conference started. So we looked at the neighborhood of where the, the church was at, and we just kind of picked a, a you know, a at least four star and above coffee, because we have standards. Uh, and, we, and we take this Uber ride to the coffee shop. And while we're getting our coffee, it just starts to pour, just torrentially pour. The heavens have opened up and the second great deluge has begun here upon earth. And we thought to ourselves, we are not walking to the, because we just thought we'd walk to the venue. We're like, this is, this is wow, we're not gonna do that. So we're like, all right, let's get an Uber to take us to the venue. So we call up another Uber. We run outside when the Uber gets there. We get into to get into the back seat and we climb back there. Neither one of us are small individuals and we kind of huddle into the back seat here. This is I'm giving you a real-time reinterpretation of our Uber trip. We climb in, close the door, the Uber driver puts it in, starts the car. <laughs> okay, we're here. We traveled, I think, a block. It was the world's shortest Uber ride, and we had no idea. We were so embarrassed. The gal's like, is this really where I'm taking you? We're like, yeah, I guess so. So we get out of our car, and well, we didn't get as wet as we, if we would have walked. But that is just one of the many ways that I love my buddy Josh, because we will just go on adventures and take block-long Uber rides. Okay, um, that's it. I'm ready to, I'm ready to get into a, the, the real reason why I came here today. Um, does that sound all right? Okay. And if it's okay with you, I'm going to open with a word of prayer, and uh, you are welcome to engage in this moment however 
you like. I tend to close my eyes, not because it's magical or mystical, but because it helps me to locate, to be here now. So if you want, I invite you to close your eyes with me. I invite you to take a deep breath in. And let it out. And maybe if you want, place a hand wherever you feel kind of your life source, wherever you feel your, the place that reminds you that you're here. For me, this is on my, my abdomen because I feel my breath there. I invite you to take another deep breath in with me. Let it out. And what I love about drawing myself back to my breath is it reminds me that I did nothing. I did nothing. The second right before that breath came, I did nothing to really earn that breath. I didn't even have to think about it. It's just there. It's this gift, this grace. And so God, with that in mind, I, I'm here amongst friends old and hopefully new with a posture of gratitude in my heart because we have another day, we have breath, we have life, and that is gift. And so God, as I share what is on my heart to say this morning, I guess my prayer is this, if there's anything that I'm about to say that is good or true or would be helpful for people on their journey of faith, then God, may it cling to our hearts, may it stick in our minds, may it live with us. And then conversely, if anything I have to say, I don't know, isn't good, isn't all that true, might not be helpful for someone, then geez, let us just forget it the minute I say it. And so may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be a gift for those who need it this morning. One more deep breath in and out. All right, amen. Good, love it. Okay, so the following three things make sense to me. Thing number one, humans are, you might say by nature, mistrustful of those who look different, talk different, think different, act different. By nature, we are mistrustful of this. And you can, you can kind of discover this as you look into evolutionary biology. You can sort of discover that it was actually the, the, the fear of the other, the protection of just the tribe, that in part allowed Homo sapiens to branch off from other sapiens as a way to sort of show, to, as a way to, to, to evolve and transcend. It was this mistrust, this protection of our own, this fear of the other. In fact, there is even research that shows that babies, um, you could put babies in the context of someone whose pigmentation of skin is vastly different from their own and they respond very differently. So even like coded into our DNA is this anxiety, this fear, this mistrust of the other. There's a sense in which that makes sense to me from that perspective. Thing number two, it also makes sense to me then that because we are meaning-making machines as humans, our ancestors would have over time needed to figure out a way to make sense of this inherent mistrust. 
Okay, uh, here's what just happened. Right now, in this moment, my iPad went offline and my notes didn't come with me. Uh, Josh, do you have Wi-Fi here? Well, this is fun. And I left my phone over on my table. Everybody say, thank you, Adam. All right. While he's doing that. So the second thing that makes sense to me is that as meaning-making machines, we as human, I think we needed to make sense of the fact that we had this instinct in us, this fear of the other, this mistrust. And so we began to come up with stories and reasons why. And what happened is we began to then solidify groups and our tribes into good and bad. And what you notice is that nobody's stories ever really involves their own people as the bad, right? Like we're always the good and it's the other that's bad. They're, they're, they're the scary, they're the different, they're the wrong. And so we began to develop these stories to make sense of these instincts. And now our people are right and they are wrong. And then the third thing that makes sense to me is that not only do we need to make, ah, oh, you're delightful. Thank you, Adam. And the third thing that makes sense to me is that not only do we need to make sense of this, but we needed to figure out a way to memorialize and preserve the ways in which we have told ourselves that we are good, we are safe, we are right, they are bad, they are scary, they are wrong. We needed a way to preserve that. Why? Because the number one most important thing for any living creature is to survive and procreate. And so we needed to teach our children and our children's children these stories to protect us from the scary tribes. I'm reminded of, anybody watched the HBO show from the book Station Eleven? Okay, one person did, thank you, that's all I needed. There's this little line in that, in that book that says, to the monsters, we're the monsters. And I just love that reminder of, to, to anybody's other, that other is another. <laughs> and our people are the good and they are the bad. So, three things make sense to me. We are sort of coded into our DNA, this mistrust, this fear of the other. Two, we end up turning that into a story about how we are the good ones, we are the right ones, and they are the bad ones, the wrong ones. And then three, we end up telling ways or figuring out ways to institutionalize and memorialize and preserve this so we pass this on to our children to keep them safe and preserve our genetic lineage. Now, what has happened then somehow along the history of human evolution as civilization and, and consciousness development continued on is that somehow along the way, somewhere, some people began to question this. Really? Is that tribe just around the riverbend all that scary? What if they're not going to eat us in our sleep? And when I read things like the Old Testament and I read some of these stories of people like the ancient Israelites, I get the sense that they, some, some amongst them were some of the folks who began to question these narratives and wonder if maybe the tribes around us are not as scary as we thought. Maybe we can transcend these instincts of mistrust of the other. Maybe, maybe. I think one word for this you might just call uh, like, like a miracle. It's kind of a miracle that there have been humans throughout history that have somehow had this instinct, this intuition that maybe those who are different from me are not to be feared. Amen. Hey, thank you. Oh, this, is, this is fun. 
And here's how I might put a finer point on, on what I've said thus far. To put a finer point on it, I would say this. The kind of tribalism that I've described thus far, where we fear the other and we get the sense that we are the good ones, this kind of tribalism, I think, can be summed up in one word. And that word for me is judge. To judge. I suggest to you that tribalism inherently judges. For to judge is to create distance and distinction and separation from others. And I think this invitation to transcend this kind of tribalism really is a way to, uh, to find a reconnection with others. In a sense, it is this conscious decision to not judge. So you have this uh, series you've been going through here at Grace Point, Stories of Seeing Differently, Epiphany. And I wanted to share with you, I think one of the most profound shifts I've had in my life as it relates to seeing things differently, really something that's changed everything about how I move through the world. And to do that, I want to go all the way back to the beginning with you. Um, not the beginning of my life, even farther back. Let's go to the beginning of the Hebrew scriptures. Y'all remember the ancient Jewish conceptions of how the world came to be, these stories in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 about the creation of everything. And do you remember how in Genesis 2, when God made the first human and placed the human in this theoretically perfect garden and said, everything is yours, enjoy it all. Except there's one fruit from this one tree. That one's off limits. But everything else, I mean, come on, just have at it. It's party time. But just this one tree from this one fruit, uh, Estanobian. And do you remember what this uh, tree is? Do you remember what this tree is? It's got a, it's got a unique name, right? It's the, it's the tree of good and evil. No. Some of you, it's the knowledge of good and evil. Thank you. It's actually the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And for most of my life, I kind of just skipped over that knowledge part. And I just, in my mind, I thought, it's the tree of good and evil. So if you eat of the tree, then I guess you become evil. <laughs> you start doing bad things. The debauchery begins on the other side of this delicious fruit. But it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a number of years ago, I found that endlessly fascinating. And I just stuck with that thought over and over again. Why? Why? Why is this the thing that the divine says, not that? Everything else, yes. This, mm. I would think that if I were God, and thank God I'm not, I would think that if I were God, I would want my newly minted creation, like the pinnacle of created beings, I would want them to know the difference between right and wrong, good and evil. I would think I would want them to know that. In fact, we have a word today that we use for people that don't know the difference between right and wrong. We call them sociopaths. 
So is that really what God wanted? Just like a creation of sociopaths? I mean, kind of mission accomplished. But uh, so this is really, why? Why is this the thing that God, the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat of that fruit. And I wonder, could it be that in the Jewish conception of how the world came to be, as they were trying to articulate how it is that their view of God, Yahweh, was perhaps, by contrast, different to the other gods of the Babylonian empires around them, perhaps they had this intuition, this, this instinct, this this enlightened idea that maybe, maybe when it all comes down to it, the one thing that God feels that perhaps human beings are ill-equipped to do, ill-equipped to handle, is this ability to judge. It's as though God says, y'all, you can have it all, but that whole like, capacity to be able to discern who's right, who's wrong, what's evil, what's, what's good, that actually is something I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep for myself. It's as though God's like, no offense, humans, but I, if you start to have the ability to like judge, I think you might screw things up. So I get the sense the ancient Israelites were, were trying to perhaps imagine a God whose hope for humanity is that there would be less of this kind of tribalism, less of this kind of inherent judgment and separation and distinction between who's right, who's wrong, who's good, who's bad. All right, back to the creation story real quick. There's a, another part in, in this Jewish creation story. This shows up in Genesis 3. You recall there was a serpent in the garden. Fun fact, never called Satan. You can look that up on your own. It's real. There's just a serpent in the garden in this story. And the serpent somehow knows um, that the idea of being able to judge, the idea of being able to discern between good and evil, right and wrong, would be an enticing thing for humans. And so the serpent comes to Eve and says, look, 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 I, I get it. God said you're going to die if you eat of this fruit. But don't be dramatic, woman. You're not going to die. Everything's going to be fine. In fact, you're actually, your eyes are going to be opened. That's the real truth here. And you'll start to be like God insofar as you can know between right and wrong, good and evil. I mean, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? In Genesis 3, 6, the woman saw that the tree was indeed beautiful and the food did look delicious. And the tree, the text says, would provide wisdom. It would provide this ability to know the difference between good and evil. And so she took some of its fruit and she ate it and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he also ate it. And then in verse seven, they both saw clearly and knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made garments for themselves. Three quick observations. First, they saw clearly. Suddenly they had new insights. They could judge this is right, this is wrong, this is good, this is bad. You are wrong, I am right. No offense to you, I just locked eyes with you. You're wonderful, I'm sure. <laughs> She's like, why did he just do that? They saw it clearly. Now they can discern, now they can judge. Number two, they saw that they were naked. 
They now saw each other in a new light, a new, you might say, identity. Before, it was just man and woman. It was good. It was all good. Now it was naked man and naked woman. And so they had knowledge of new identities that they didn't have before. New markers of distinction. It's like they had labels for each other. Huh. Suddenly there was a sense of separation. Maybe from themselves. Ooh, I got to cover up. From each other. Ooh, you better cover up. Quick pause here, and Josh, this might get me uninvited from future Grace Point Sundays. My apologies ahead of time. Quick point, and I might lose you here, but hang, it's fine, hit it. What's gonna happen is gonna happen. I do, okay, I love you all, and I love, I love this world that we inhabit. And by this world, primarily, I mean like this progressive Christian thing that we're trying to figure out. But can I just say this? And remember when I prayed at the beginning, if anything's not good, not true, not helpful, just let us forget it. This might be true for some of you. Okay, I do think, I do have some concerns every once in a while within my progressive world. Um, I, I do every once in a while wonder if we get so overly concerned with and so preoccupied with our various identity markers that by the time we list them all off and eventually get to human, we've like forgotten the human part. And we've created all these layers of separation by all these various markers, and then human comes at the end. And there are times when I think maybe over on the progressive side, we get a little carried away, and the intent is good and the heart is good, which is why I don't want you to leave me right now. Like I get it. But sometimes I just want to bring it all back to we're just all humans. Okay. Back to the subject at hand. So for me, I read this story, and it's not that they became evil right away, right? This is, this is oftentimes sort of the, the way in which we have internalized this story over the years. We might have heard it or, or, or whatever context, and we think they eat the, the, from the, the, the forbidden fruit, and then they become wicked, evil people. And this is really not the point, as I understand it, of what the story is saying to us. It doesn't seem like this is what's going on to me. It seems that rather they became people who started to see one another as different, as distinct, with new identities. And this is why my third observation here is that they began to sew these fig leaves and make garments for themselves because now with this new knowledge that they have, this insight into right, wrong, good, bad, disabled to make distinctions, they now felt a sense of shame. And shame, I'm sure I don't need to tell you this, Grace Point, you know this as well as I do. Shame is this thing that sits at the very heart of what it feels like to be disconnected. Disconnected from ourselves. Disconnected from our family, our communities. Disconnected from the divine. Shame. Shame is a thing that convinces us of that. It's not true, BT dubs. You can't actually be disconnected from the divine. The shame sure as hell tells us it's true. So for me, when I kind of put this calculus together, it seems 
almost as simple as saying that judging leads to shame. Deciding who's right, who's wrong, who's in, who's out, that leads to shame, whether we internalize the shame because we now feel like we're on the outs or whether we, we hoist it upon others because you're wrong and now they feel this sense of shame. Judging leads to shame. And I think that one of the most profound insights into the human condition that stories like Genesis 1, 2, and 3 illuminate, one of the most profound insights into the human condition is that at our core, I think humanity is not designed to speak words of judgment against one another. I think that job, if it even exists, is God's and God's alone. So where does that leave us? Well, this is the epiphany that I referred to earlier that changed how I see everything. And it's one of those things where it's so bloody obvious that once I saw, I couldn't figure out how, I'd, how I hadn't seen before. And even when I say it to you, you're going to be like, oh, that's what all this was leading up to? <laughs> but I promise you, there comes a day. When the most profound truths are so simple, but they fall into, they have a way of falling into our hearts in such a way it just knocks us over with, oh, <laughs> I get it now. And so this is the epiphany that has I would say quite literally, or at least millennial literally, changed the course of my life the last 10 years. And it's this. The author of the book of 1 John once wrote that God is love. And I believe that real love, true love, the purest form of capital L love, does not judge like at all. Which means, which means that I think that God may not have a judging bone in their metaphorical anthropological body. I don't think God has a bone in God's anthropomorphic body. I may be wrong. I've been wrong on lots of things. Lots of things I've been wrong on. To which you're like, well, then why are you here? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe because I'm honest about how wrong I am. So I may be wrong about this. But this is what I, this is what I have believed for years now, that there is no God judging you. Uh-uh. Not now. Not ever. Not later tonight for Sunday fun day. Not when you think back to three weeks ago and that thing you said to that one person. Not the thing you're probably going to do a month from now that's going to disappoint someone. No judgment. At least not from God. No judgment. And I think that's good news. <laughs> I think that's good news. But I get how for many it is not good news. 
Because oftentimes what can happen is if we let go of the idea that God doesn't judge, then we also have to confront the fact that perhaps we ought not judge. And that can get real scary real fast. Because many of us need the ability to create distinction between others. We need to other others. We need to know who's right, who's wrong, who's in, who's out. And even I think many of us in this room, because I imagine your stories are similar to mine, many of us in this room, we came out of worlds and religions and communities in which that was kind of the primary focus. And we had these, these demarcation identities of, of, of behavior and belief. And we're like, okay, we know what the tribe looks like and what it requires to get inside the tent and the gatekeepers and that, that whole tomfoolery. And we have left that or in some, some cases been kicked out of it. And we found this more expansive thing. What did we start doing once we got outside of the gate? We made new gates. And we're like, I'm so glad I'm not like them anymore. <laughs> so glad I'm not like how I used to be. And we just kind of created new ways of, of separation and judging, all the while trying to convince ourselves that we're not playing the us and them game anymore. And so what I'm saying is, is it can be scary and super vulnerable to let go of the idea that God, maybe God doesn't judge at all, because then we have to have this like trickle-down, doctrinal, theological, philosophical, humanitarian impact to where now, what if... What if we shouldn't be judging either? But like I said at the very beginning, this is like, this is hard. It's hard to do. Because our ancestors worked really, 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 really hard to get us to where we are today. And that involved a level of creating safety and boundaries. And so it's like coded into our DNA to mistrust others. So those, those instincts run deep. It's, it's hard to just kind of be like, I think we should not judge. I get it. It's easier said than done. But I also think that some things can only be done once they've been said. And so I guess I'm here saying to you, I don't think God has a judging bone in their body. I think it means that you and I to the extent that they exist in us, would do well to begin to eradicate that from us as well. So yeah, we got this, this judging gene, if you will. But you know what's also coded into our DNA? What's also coded into our DNA? The all, uh, another thing that runs through our very soul is that we also are, are somehow, um, we have this imago Dei in us, this image of God, this Somehow there is this mystical, magical, divine stardust that also courses through our veins, that also runs through us. And I think, I think, I think that this Imago Dei that is within us, this image of God, that we can actually be empowered just by the very fact of having this God in us, we can be empowered to actually just Stop judging. <laughs> and I, it's actually as simple as that. I know it's not easy, but it actually is as simple as that. We can just stop. 
We can begin to notice when we're doing it. We can begin to notice when we begin to think of other people as less than. We can begin to notice when we think of other people with different labels and we start to call them things. We can think of it when we start to do it to ourselves and we start to internalize these ideas. We can actually just take a step back and say, no, actually, I'm not going to judge. I'm going to take Tuesday off. I'll give myself Thursday because you don't know Denise at the office, but I'm going to take Tuesday off. We can actually just stop. We can choose another way. We can choose another path. We can choose love. Now, I hear what some of you are thinking. And I'm not really going to respond to it because I think that's part two of this message and I just don't have time today. So maybe, Josh, if I do get invited back, I can do... Because part two of this message is... Okay, but Colby, what do we do about the fact that there really is like injustice and harm that happens in the world and people really do things that hurt people? I think the key there is that we can, with discernment and caution and care, and once we've removed the speck out of our eye, then we can begin to judge, have an opinion about, be uh, somewhat aware of the actions of other people but never the identity. That's for me the distinction. We can have a, we can have a judgment very, very, I would slow your roll on it, by the way, because that's the whole plank splinter thing is like, it takes a lot of work before you can actually have a thing to say about someone's actions. But judging identities, not for us. I'm going to invite the band up and here's how I'm going to close. I said a minute ago that I think that God and God alone is capable of judging. I think that's it. I think this is the thing that, 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 that the divine, that God, that whatever, that the source that is in all and through all, there's like one thing that, that this being, this ground of being, there's this one thing that is like, I really, I love you guys, I do. Like, trust me, I love you. But I think if you have this capacity to separate, to divide, to create distinction, to know the difference between right and wrong, I think it's going to be a disaster. I think I, I need to hold on to that for myself. And I actually think we can take that one step further. And this is the last thing I'm going to say. If God and God alone, if I'm correct about this, and God and God alone is the only one both capable of rightly judging identity and the only one that ought. I actually think that judgment has already been rendered. And for me, this is illuminated in the story of Jesus being baptized by his cousin John. And if you remember that story, as Jesus comes up out of the water, People reported it was as though there was this voice from the heavens that said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And I think that, Grace Point, is the judgment, the assessment, the label of your identity and everyone who's ever lived, that you are a beloved Son of God, and in you, God is well pleased, that you are a beloved daughter 
of God, and in you God is well pleased, that you are a beloved child of God, and in you God is well pleased. That, that's it. It's it. It's true about you. It's true about me. And this is the epiphany that has changed my life. To move into anything else, to try to have any other assessment of who's right, who's wrong, who's in, who's out, to do any of that, I think, is to fight against the flow of the universe. It is to put into the fabric of the divine something that does not belong. To try to separate what is inherently connected will never work. So I leave you with those words. You, and you, and you, and you, and you. Where's the camera? And you are a beloved child of God, full stop, just as you are. And in you, God is, well, pleased.